0: You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. Our text today is taken from Hebrews chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold to our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, in the summer of 1975, my dad lost his scuba diving partner. And now I don't mean lost like he died. I mean lost like he just refused to go out with him anymore. And it was interesting because that summer is the summer that a lot of people who used to love the ocean developed a sudden allergy to salt water. See, in, in the, number, uh, the summer of 1975, the movie Jaws came out. The movie is based on a book by the same name. And, and while it's a fictional book, it tells a, a real enough story See the movies, uh, the the brilliance of Jaws in the movie, but especially in the book, is that it really strikes at the very center of fear. There's a reason people are scared of the dark. It's because we're scared of what we don't understand. It's it, we're scared of what we can't know, what we can't see. And in the movie, it takes a long time before you ever really get a good look at the shark. But but in the book, his his size is even veiled all that much more. And so as you read page after page, the fear of him grows exponentially in in ways that words on a page never could. And so because so many became so overwhelmingly fearful of Jaws that summer, many avoided the water altogether. Even this fictional giant served as a real enough warning to everyone going to the beach that summer. There could be monsters out there. But what we're looking at today in Hebrews chapter 3 is not a fictional warning. What the author of Hebrews is doing in our text is giving us a real warning. He's saying sin is a monster, and it's roaming the waters just waiting for someone to venture off the boat. Today we, we arrive at the second of several warning passages in the book of Hebrews, so buckle up. They're going to keep coming. And to be honest with you, I think our engagement with the warning passages can be a little tricky, right? Sometimes we don't know exactly how we're to relate to passages like this. Like, well, we're Christians. Aren't we supposed to have assurance as Christians? Doesn't the gospel set me free from from the stresses that this passage might provoke in me? And I would say yes, on both accounts. Yes, on both accounts. But that does not mean that we gloss over passages like this. One pastor in the UK put it like this. He says, the warnings in Hebrews should be treated like many other warnings in the New Testament as genuine admonitions whose purpose is to exhort the readers to persevere and which serve to ensure this happens by highlighting the danger of falling away. In other words, we should treat this as a real warning. The assurance of our salvation in Christ and the warning against falling away if we do not attend to the path of this salvation is a both and. These are not mutually exclusive, they coexist in the Christian life. Genuine Christians, we need these warnings because they're meant to push us to cling to Jesus. Because as we've been saying for months now, Jesus is better, He's better. And now, because I don't trust my oratory skills enough, I'm going to give you my main point right now. Here's the main point of my sermon. Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, but cling to Christ in confidence. And as you hear the word of the Lord today, don't turn away from him in unbelief, but confidently cling to him in faith. And I trust that as we do that, we will find The confident assurance that the Bible promises to us. I trust that. And we're going to open up uh, that, that point. We're going to break it down and open it up into three headings. And the first is this. Hear the Spirit's voice. Hear the Spirit's voice. Now, as we turn our attention to the text, we're going to have to do a little bit of Bible work. We're going to have to do a little bit of Bible work here. Because the writer of Hebrews seems to assume a very thorough knowledge of the Old Testament and its stories as he's writing to these folks and so we have to do the work to acquaint ourselves with what he's saying before we can try to apply it to our own lives now in verses 7 through 11 of our text these verses are cited directly from psalm 95 and this is a psalm about the worship of god psalm in psalm 95 the the psalmist leads the reader to exalt god he's the king of kings he's the mighty lord over all And in fact, the first two verses of the psalm are what we use to call one another to worship this morning. Showing its utility in our lives. This is meant to evoke praise in us. We're called to to praise God with robust, joy-laden thanksgiving because he deserves it. He's our maker and we are the people of his pasture, the psalm says. But the verses quoted here uh, are, are the final verses in the psalm. And they show us something very important about about worship. Something that I think many of us tend to overlook in our worship to God. And it's this. Worship has a fitting outcome. Obedience. Worship has a fitting outcome, and it's obedience. And the uh, the psalmist is leveraging famous stories in Israel's history to punctuate this point about obedience. Now, he's, he's, the psalmist is referring to, to Exodus 17 and Numbers 20, two distinct stories where Moses struck the rock in the wilderness to provide water in the desert, in the desert for the liberated Israelites. And, and we know this because the, the author of Hebrews has actually done some work for us. He's, he's translated two words, rebellion and testing, in, in verse 8. And these are translations of the names, Meribah and Massah. These are the locations of where this occurred in the Old Testament. But the psalmist is probably also alluding to Numbers 14, where the Israelites were unwilling to enter the promised land after the spies came back and they said, hey, there are giants and nations in the land that God has said that he's giving to us. And they refused to to enter in. The people wonder why they were brought out just to die in this new land when they could have just died as easily in Egypt. And then God promises an entire generation is going to wander and die off in the wilderness for 40 years because of this, because of their unwillingness to follow him, because of their unbelief, they will not enter the promised rest. And to be honest, you'd be really well served to just go home this afternoon and read those passages. Read those chapters. Exodus 17, Numbers, uh, excuse me, Numbers 14, Numbers 20, Psalm 95. I I flew over the details. You'd be really well served to get a handle on those texts. It's going to inform what we're learning about in Hebrews here. Because, while I I left out a great deal of detail. There is, though, one plumb line that runs through each of the stories that I want to highlight. And it's this, in every instance, the people were grumbling. They rebelled and they didn't trust God in every single instance. And let's remember the recent history of Israel up until that point, right? They were slaves in Egypt under Pharaoh and God sent them a deliverer in Moses. And then they got to witness the plagues that God sent as he makes a laughingstock of the so-called gods of Egypt. The people had been saved by the blood of the lamb that they put on their doorposts as the Lord passed over them but struck down the Egyptians. They walked through the Red Sea on dry ground and they got all the way to the end just in time to turn around and watch the waters enclose on their enemies. They had been given bread from heaven to feed them in just the right amount every single day. They were led by the Lord in a pillar of fire and smoke. Nations were defeated before them. The list goes on and on and on. In every instance, God provided for their every need in miraculous ways that they all witnessed together. And yet, when they didn't get what they wanted, in the way that they wanted it, when God didn't do for them just as they thought that he should, they grumbled and they rebelled and they hardened their hearts in unbelief. And the author of Hebrews is assuming all of this. He's assuming all of this as background knowledge when he writes in verse seven, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says. See, the apostle wrote this down centuries ago. And he's citing a psalm that was written down centuries before that, which refers to events and words that were written down centuries before that. You could argue, and I would, that there are millennia in this text. Thousands of years are made up in this text. And God the Holy Spirit is speaking through it today. Present tense. Today, if you hear his voice, we all heard it. God is speaking to us today through his word. We all want to hear a word from God. We all want it desperately. But God is speaking to you today. And he's telling us, if you hear my words today, do not rebel against me like they did. See, we've pointed out, as the series has gone on, we've pointed out that the book of Hebrews is is very Christocentric. And what that means is that it's centered, it's focused on Jesus Christ, the second person of the triune God. But we serve one God who, who makes himself known, who we, he knows us in three distinct persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And in the book of Hebrews, they all speak. In Hebrews 1.1, 1, 1, it was the Father who spoke at various times and in various ways. In chapter 2, verse 13, it's the Son who's speaking to the Father as the author quotes from Psalm 22. And here in our text today, God the Holy Spirit is distinctly speaking to us through the inspired words of Scripture. And he's using ancient words to remind us anew that just as grumbling and rebellion kept people out of his promised rest, so too can it happen to us. We are warned. God is speaking through his word and he's extending to us a question as we hear his voice today. Will we listen? Hear the Spirit's voice. That's point number one. Point number two. Heed the Spirit's commands. See, this is what hearing actually produces, right? I feel like parents would understand this pretty well. We tell our kids, are are you listening? Yeah, I can hear you. No, no, no. I I know you can hear me, but are you hearing me? Because you're not obeying, and that's what hearing actually produces, after using Psalm 95 as his text to teach from, like any good preacher, uh, the apostle who is who, 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 writing this, he, he, he turns in the text and he, he applies it. And that's what we get in verses 12 and 13. We get two commands, one in each verse. Uh, uh, verse 12 is a personal command, and verse 13 we could say is an interpersonal command. And so let's look at both in turn. First, the personal. Look at verse 12. Take care, brothers or that could be brothers and sisters, Let there be, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. One of my um, favorite sports debate shows is called First Things First. And the, the hosts, you could tell they're good friends and they have kind of a funny back and forth as they... Dialogue and debate the, the sports topics of the day. But one of the hosts, his name is Chris Broussard. Um, he's known for being on the show the guy that is facts over feelings. That's what he says. Over, I'm the facts over feelings guy. He, he's the one that's supposedly objective. And he doesn't let his biases get in the way of the facts of the matter at hand. But what we find out regularly as we watch the show is that while he does leverage a lot of facts in his arguments, occasionally he seems to interpret those facts less than objectively. His biases do get in the way. He doesn't always have the ability to simply put his feelings aside. And and in our common usage, the the way we speak about this uh, commonly, we would say that his heart gets in the way of what his mind knows is true. See, the Bible speaks a lot about the heart. A lot. But rarely does it ever mean the physical pump that resides in our chests. Most often, when the Bible uses the word heart, it means metaphorically. It's using it in a metaphorical sense. But even then, God's word rarely uses the word heart in the same way that we do. Typically, when we use the word heart as a metaphor, we use it in a very narrow category of emotions. We say things like, follow your heart. Well, what does that mean? We we mean, follow your gut. Follow your instincts. Do what feels right. Follow your emotions. If your head is telling you one thing, but you don't really quite know what to do, let your heart lead you. Just follow your gut. Follow your emotions. And because this is how we use this word, we're going to be prone to reading that in when we read the word heart here in our text. We'll put it just in the realm of emotions because that's how we use it, but that's not how the Bible uses the word heart. When the Bible uses the word heart, it, it it signifies the seat of a person's inner being. It, it's our guiding motivation. It's our moral conscience. And this includes a person person's will, but it also includes a person's emotions. But that's not really all that it means. We could we could imagine it that the Bible uses the word heart in the same way that like uh, uh, the bridge of a ship. The captain and the crew are up there making decisions that guide this giant vessel. The Bible understands the heart to be the central location directing all of the various activities of our lives. It's far more than emotions. It involves reason. It involves logic. It's our deepest understandings of reality. It's all mixed together in what the Bible calls the heart. But unfortunately, as you read the Bible you realize that our, our, our hearts are also described as desperately sick and wicked and stubborn and pigheaded and obstinate and evil and unwilling to follow God. And so we're wholly directed by our hearts. We can't just be people that are facts over feelings. But the problem is that the hearts directing us are constantly choosing the wrong paths. But that's why the gospel is such good news. Because in Christ, God has given us a new heart to all those who believe. But see, the the command here is clear. It says, take care, which means look, investigate. See, Hebrews is a letter written to Christians. And so the author is assuming Christianity. He's assuming faith in his audience. But the warnings show us that there's also an assumption that there are some within the four walls of the church who don't really believe. Right? That's that's what verses 16 through 19 are all about. A whole generation within God's community who saw him working miraculous wonders that we talked about earlier. And they didn't enter his rest because they didn't really trust him. They hadn't really believed. God is saying to us, it's not, the evidence, it's not that the evidence of my salvation was missing, that they disobeyed. It's because their hard hearts were present, leading them astray. And so verse 12 is saying, take care, look at yourself and your life. Jesus is going to put it like this. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. True worship produces obedience. Are you obeying him? Take inventory of your life. And and, and hear me. Obedience is not legalism. Obedience to God's commands is love for him in action. Right? When a couple gets married, the promises at the altar do not prove their love. They're promises made. Their love is proved when she gets cancer. When, when he loses his job. When he's just not the same man that you married 10 years ago. Who is this? That's when the love is proved. That's, uh, proved. That's when you prove those promises true. One author put it like this. He says, a high view of scripture. We could say, to, to say that we love Jesus. We love the Lord. We love his word. A high view of scripture involves not just quoting the Bible when it's convenient, but submitting to it when it's not. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. We all, all of us need to take care. We need to look at our lives because if we're not interested in obeying him, then we should question whether or not that that heart directing us, maybe it's still evil and unbelieving. Maybe you said a prayer. Maybe you grew up in a Christian home. Maybe you come to church every single week. And maybe you still have a hard and unbelieving heart that refuses to obey God. That's the personal command. Now, secondly, the interpersonal command. Look at verse 13. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Here here we see that our responsibility is not just to watch over our own lives. It's not just to take care, constantly looking inward, checking our own heart to be sure that we're not straying too far away. But here we see we have a responsibility to one another. Exhort one another. Now, certain translations, uh, you may have one in your lap, certain translations are going to translate the word exhort here as encouraged. And the Greek word honestly could be translated both ways. But, but I, I tend to think that exhort is the better translation in, in this instance because this is a warning. The NLT, for instance, if you have an NLT, it's going to read, uh, you must warn each other. They make it real plain. It, it's like this. My family was trick-or-treating this last week. And, and I didn't pull my young children aside and say like, hey, you know, I think it would be a good idea. I want you to consider. I think it would be a good idea if you just stay near me. Don't wander off. You never know what could happen, so it would probably just be a good idea to stay. No, I said, I pulled them aside and I said, look, listen, it's dark. There are thousands of people out here. You're little. It would be easy for you to get lost. You need to stay near me. We still ended up having an incident, but he was found, so he's, he's still here. But Hebrews is telling us here that we need to have enough love for one another to see a brother or a sister falling away from the living God and go warn them. Sin is a monster. It's lurking, it's deceitful, and it's not always obvious. If you're in one of our Bible studies, you'll remember that just a couple of weeks ago in 2 Corinthians 11, we covered the fact that even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Sin is a monster. It's lurking, it's deceptive, and it's ready to overcome us. And and we oftentimes are the last ones to see it in ourselves. That's why we need one another. Usually we don't choose to sin because we love doing wrong things, but because we're convinced that those wrong things are actually right. Right? That's where Adam failed. Eve was being deceived, and he did nothing. Now, we the church are gifts of God given to one another with the purpose of helping one another persevere. Our purpose in each other's lives is to help one another make it to the end, make it to the promised rest. God has given each of us a blade, and we're supposed to use it on one another But it's not a machete, it's a surgeon's scalpel. We cut one another only in order to heal each other. Church, we need to have the boldness to love one another well enough to be willing to grieve one another, if it means it, to see that person repent. If it means that that they won't become hardened, if it means that they'll make it to the end. Do we love each other like that? And friends, hear me. These commands are not for later. Today is a constant refrain in the text. The apostle is saying in these commands, if today is today, then don't harden your hearts. Hear the Spirit speaking to you again. If today is today, then go exhort your brother or sister. Don't wait. Tomorrow's not promised. Do it today. Respond to the Spirit's voice today. Pick up the scalpel today. We need to heed the Spirit's commands. That's point number two. Finally, third point number three, hope in the Spirit's promise. Now, look at verse 14. We have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Now, at this point, you may be asking, some very reasonable questions. Very reasonable. You you may be saying, Matt, at the very beginning you said, assurance and warning are compatible. All I feel is warned. All I feel is worried. How can I be sure? How can I be sure that I've come to share in Christ? How can I be sure that I'm holding him firm enough? How can I know? That's a reasonable question. But when the Lord Jesus came in the flesh... Just like Israel went through the waters of the Red Sea, so too Jesus came and he went through the waters of baptism. And just like Israel went through the waters of the Red Sea and then out into the wilderness where they failed, they rebelled, they hardened their hearts, the Lord Jesus went through the waters of baptism out into the wilderness and he held firm to the word of God. When he came back, though, from his temptation in the wilderness, and he he formally began his ministry, what were the first words out of his mouth? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. See, there's a reason that we confess our sin every single week. And there's a reason that we remind ourselves of the assurance that we have in Christ every single week. It's because this is how we hold firm to the end. This is how we hold our original confidence in Christ. It's by reminding ourselves that we are weak and we need a Savior. Each week we recall how we came into the the faith. Our original confidence, how we came into the faith, it was through repentance. Each of us, and I don't care how good of a week you had, each of us comes in this building every Sunday, sinners in need of mercy. We need God to be merciful to us. But friends, listen, Jesus is a merciful and a just king. See, our only hope is this, that the Lord Jesus, the man who passed his test in the wilderness, the man who didn't rebel against God and his ways, but he held firm as he listened to the spirit's voice, the second person of the triune God come in the flesh. Our hope is that he bled and he died on a cross in our place. That he bore the punishment that our sin deserves, that our hard hearts deserve in order that we could have his new one. And in that, that, at that act of sacrifice for us, we who do not deserve it, he crushed the head of the monster that lurks the deeps. When we repent of our sins and we turn again in obedience to his commands, we hold our confidence firm. In the kingdom of God strength is found in weakness and in the kingdom of God confidence is found in repentance It's been well documented from this pulpit that I have a fear of spiders no big deal but I'm keeping receipts um, but do you do you know uh, and I think it's very reasonable by the way but we can talk about that later um, do you know what else I'm afraid of let's just transparency time. Do you know what else I'm frightened of? Snakes. Snakes. Not really. Sharks. And I didn't have to be alive in the summer of 75 to, to cultivate that fear of jaws. See, sharks frighten me. If you drop me down in the middle of the ocean, I guarantee you the first thought that comes to my mind is what's beneath me. I bet it's a shark. It's a shark, isn't it? I'm sure it's a shark. And to be, sh- to be scared of sharks is not unreasonable. They're built like self-propelled torpedoes. They have rows of razor-sharp teeth. When they're just being curious, they can take your leg off. And they can smell your hangnail from miles away. That's what we call reasons. However, in the presence of all of these reasons and more, do you know where I'm not nearly as afraid of sharks even when I'm out on the water? In a boat. And the bigger the boat, the lesser the fear. See, sin is like Jaws. It's a monster lurking the depths, and it's frightening. Like Jaws, sin is just waiting for someone weak and injured to venture off the boat. And our own sin and the sin of this world, the sin that we see in our brothers and sisters, it should scare us. I mean, like, scare us, scare us. And while it is something to be reasonably scared of, For the Christian, to share in Christ really means to be in the water, but on a boat. The ocean may rock that boat and remind you of what could happen if you fall in. But as long as you're in the boat, you can have some peace of mind even while you're out on the water. And the beauty of the Christian gospel is that because of the empty tomb left by our crucified and risen Savior, we know that that boat is eventually going to make it to land where we're not going to have to worry about the monsters that lurk in the deeps ever again. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you.